Turn back now to the letter to Romans and to chapter 12, and at the beginning of that chapter, Romans 12 and at verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so on. Now we know, of course, that our physical health is important to us, and we will do everything to try and protect ourselves from any disease and from any way in which our health may be affected. And of course, um, that is out without control, but we will naturally do everything to ensure that we keep good health. And we'll continue to look at the way in which uh, the church is focusing on uh, the importance of having a healthy gospel church in every community. And we have uh, seen the way in which, uh, through the First Timothy chapter 3, we saw the way in which uh, the purpose of the church is to give uh, to the world that sense of the doctrine and of the teaching of the Bible, and so be the kind of pillar of light in the world. And following on from there, uh, we saw the way in which the church is the healthy body of Christ from Ephesians 4, uh, and then proceeded to think of the healthy gospel church in the sense of having a healthy heart in Ephesians chapter 3. And so we're building up a kind of profile of what the healthy church should look like and seeking to encourage yourselves in, in achieving that and coming to understand what that looks like and to understand how that works. And I guess as we think of the church as the body of Christ and then think of the importance of, of the healthy heart of the body of the church, the next most important thing along with that is to have the kind of mind that is consistent with the word of God and through which we are on that basis going to serve the Lord and do what the Lord requires of us. And we come to these verses and we want to think especially of the way in which the mind is at the center of the way in which the church in Rome, they were going to serve the Lord Jesus. And when we come to this stage in the letter and, and we read at the beginning of the chapter that he is appealing to brothers and he is appealing by the mercies of God. There were two things that, that, that Paul was trying to address in this church. And the first of these was the way in which the Gentiles saw the Jews as primitive Christians and the way in which the Greeks saw the Jews as old-fashioned and out-of-date Christians. So there was that kind of conflict in, in the church in Rome. And when Paul writes this letter, he begins by addressing humankind in general so that you and me and everyone else, we find our common ground. And he brought the whole of the people in Rome by the middle of chapter 3, to the place where everyone is condemned under sin and under the wrath of God. There is no one justified because of who they are or what they have done. 
And from that common ground, he has built up the case of the grace of God, of the redemption we have in Christ, and taken us on stepping stones from verse 24 of chapter 3 to the end of chapter 8, where it brings us to the pinnacle of being the children of God that will certainly at last arrive in the paradise of God because nothing can separate us from the love of God. And he proceeds in in chapters 9 to 11 to, to address the issues with regard to the purpose of God and with regard to the purpose of God for the Jews, for the Gentiles, and for the world. And so when he's saying, by the mercies of God, he is looking at the people who, who were divided. He's explained to them the doctrines of grace and of salvation. And on that basis, he is now appealing to them. And so when we come to these words, he is not appealing to those who don't know the gospel. He's appealing to those whom he has instructed and whom he has taught step by step from the basic elementaries of being lost in our sin to the high point of being the children of God who know God as our Father. And from this point onwards, he is looking at this people who are going to be part of God's purpose to transform the globe, transform the world, and that's what the church is for. So we stand on the threshold of this chapter, we look back to the foundations of salvation, we look forward to the gospel going from here out into the world and their role in the gospel going forth in that way. In other words, God has a mission, they have a role to play in it, and they will understand that as he goes on through these chapters to speak to them as he does as the body of Christ as we read down through the chapter. And so, bearing that in mind and seeing this appeal at the beginning of this chapter, we want to think of the importance of our minds as as Christians and a life of total dedication to God. After all, if we are true believers and serious about being the children of God, then we want to give our lives totally to God and to the service of God. I want to see, first of all, that we have in the passage a transaction. And the transaction is twofold. And it comes to the very heart of their lives, and it comes to the very heart of their worship. First of all, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. To place at God's disposal. I see the offerer coming in the Old Testament. I I see Aaron coming with a sacrifice. And he comes and he presents it it to God. He places the sacrifice at God's disposal and the possession of it passes from the person who is offering the sacrifice and passes the ownership of the sacrifice on to God. And in that sense, all that is happening in the transaction is passing the rights and the use and the service of the sacrifice to what God has purposed 
to do. And when we read, for example, in, in Exodus 13 and in Leviticus 1 and in these passages, we, when you read, we see that there is a consecration, there is a setting apart, and there is the sacrificial offering. And following on from that, this whole idea of, of presenting as a sacrifice is a code word for changing the form of existence of something. And go, going back again to the history, we, we, have, we have a lamb in the field belongs to the offerer. The offerer takes the lamb from the field and brings it to be sacrificed at the tabernacle, at the temple. Its existence has changed completely from being where it was in the field to being where it now is on the altar of God. And Paul wants his readers in Rome to understand that they are going to through that, go through that same transaction themselves with regard to themselves and with regard to their bodies. Present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and acceptable. And their bodies, we can think of the bodies quite simply as the way in which they interact with the world externally, as the way in which they live in Rome. And in chapter 6, we, we see the way in which Paul speaks about let not sin reign in your bodies any longer. That is, reign in your mortal bodies because you've died to sin you're now alive through Christ and in Christ. And because you are alive, present the members of your body as instruments of righteousness in the service of God. All that their bodies are, which they used in the service of sin, now becomes bodies that are used in the service of God. And that sacrifice is living and holy and it's acceptable to God. What they are doing corresponds to the perfection of the sacrifice that was offered in the Old Testament. They are living not in the sense that they are alive, but living especially in the sense that they have the new life of God in their hearts. They have the spirit of adoption in their hearts. They have the new life of God. And that new life of God means that, that they are holy and set apart for God. And because of that, they are acceptable to God. And their whole lives are lived in devotion to God, in the service of his name and in the observance of the teaching of the Bible and the way in which Paul has explained the gospel to them. They are to place themselves at God's disposal. And they are to do so in that self-sacrificing way. In the sense of placing our lives on the altar of self-sacrifice, self giving ourselves over to God. 
and the body is the whole person living in all that the living person does. And it's a remarkable appeal. It is on the basis of, of the grace of God that has worked in their lives, but it is a remarkable appeal that they are to give up everything to God, that they are going to hand over everything to be possessed by God, to be at God's disposal, and for God, as he did in the temple, for God to, to use the sacrifice in accordance with his own purposes. Our lives as a living sacrifice. How ready are we to give that kind of total dedication to God? How ready are we to compartmentalize our lives and to place on the one hand the things that we keep for ourselves, our own possession and at our own disposal, and then put other parts of our lives, compartmentalize them and put them in another box for God's disposal. And by doing so, demonstrating how divided our hearts can be in our relationship with God, and demonstrating that our commitment doesn't reach the level that God requires. And Paul could see that with the Romans because of the way in which they engaged with each other, of their failure to understand what the gospel meant in relation to each other and even in relation to God. The importance of that total commitment to God that is nothing less than the whole of our lives given over to him. There is the transaction of self-sacrifice. But Paul does not stop at that. He qualifies the sacrifice and goes on to say, which is your spiritual worship? And we connect that with what he has said before and, and we, we see that their bodies, all that they do in their living, now becomes an act of worship. Again, we think of compartmentalizing. We allocate two hours in the Lord's Day to the public worship of God. We allocate time for our family worship in the morning and in the evening. And we use the rest of our time for our own needs, for our own ambitions, for the things that we desire to do, we make the great mistake that our worship stops the moment that we arise from our knees, the moment that we open our eyes from our prayers, the moment we leave the public worship of God. But here, Paul is reminding them that the whole of their lives is one act of worship. And he's connecting that with what he said in the first chapter, that the people were wrong and that they departed from the revelation of God and they worshipped and served the creature more than the creator. And he's now connecting with that great change that has taken place so that he's taken the worship that 
did not happen in Revelation 1 because of the people's sin, that it is now a worship that is happening in every area of this people's life and living. Our lives are worship. So that when I go to my work, it's part of my worship. So that I, when I go on, my, on, on recreation, when I go on my holiday, it's part of my worship. My whole life is worship. And so when I go to place A or place X, when I go there, I don't cut myself off from, from who I am and, and what God has made me because wherever I go, my worship ought not to stop. I do everything to the glory of God. And if it is challenging that we have to give our whole lives as a living sacrifice, the challenge goes much further when this means the whole of our lives being worshipped. And perhaps we can say with confidence tonight that there is no one in the church of Jesus Christ that is doing this fully and completely and thoroughly 100%. We we are all failures when it comes to, to this massive claim of the gospel upon us. We are all failures because we do not give our whole lives in worship to God. We have the habit, and it's a habit that uh, happens in every generation, we have the habit of breaking up and of sectionalizing and giving small bits to God and keeping the rest for ourselves. And when he says that, he says that it is your spiritual worship. I think the translation is not the best. It is far better to read it, which is your reasonable or rational worship. In other words, it's the way in which God has made you and the way, it's the way in which you should naturally give yourself to God. It's something that arises from your creation from the hand of God in the image of God. It's rational. They lost sight of this rationale and this reasoning in chapter 1. But for the child of God, the worship has, has changed to be something that's entirely reasonable. That God made created man in his own image. That he created him male and female, that he created him in order to fill the world with the image of God. And the reasonable thing was that in that place of paradise that there was worship in every area of life. And so Paul is stopping the claims that this is unreasonable Surely it's unreasonable for you to expect us to, to live in this complete giving up of ourselves 
not just in, in worship, acts of public worship of God or private worship of God, but surely it's unreasonable that you're expecting us to have our whole lives as worship wherever we go. No, in actual fact, it's the most reasonable thing of all because of the way in which God has made you. And it, and it brings the whole idea of worship full circle because in the Old Testament at the tabernacle the worship was external we could see it God in places like Deuteronomy chapter 6 is looking for worship that comes from the heart and here Paul is calling for a worship that is moving from the external to be a worship that is in the hearts but which comes to show itself externally and in that way, that what God has done in this people, he has brought them to the very place where he wanted his people to be in the Old Testament, but where they failed to get to. Sacrifice and worship. The healthy body of people, the healthy church of, of Christ in Rome is dependent on this transaction and when he is saying that to present your bodies the plural itself reminds us that this is for us all it's no going to change much if, if one person if two people if a small group of people do this in Rome Paul needs the, the whole of the Christian community to take this on board and to, to live in this sacrificial, worshipping way, giving all that they are to God. And for ourselves tonight, that's exactly what God requires of us. Nothing less. This claim is complete. And if we understand what God is saying, it's reasonable. Because he has made us for himself and he has a purpose for us. And the only way in which we can fulfill that purpose is if we hand ourselves over completely to be at his disposal. The transaction. Secondly, and flowing on from there, we have the transformation that comes in the second verse. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Do not be conformed. We came across this whole idea in, in the morning service. It's being conformed by, by yielding to the power of something, by handing ourselves over to the power of something else, so that it becomes more than simply coming down to the level of something else. There is that handing ourselves over and there is taking a pattern that belongs to something else. It's something that's so natural to humankind in the world. We, we follow examples. We follow different patterns. We see something attractive. There are trends in society. And all of a sudden, what's, what's a small trend becomes a fashion and the whole movement becomes 
part of being taken over by something else. And without us realizing it, we are falling into to the same trap, the same mold, and we become just like that something else. And here Paul is saying to them that they should not be conformed to this world. More particularly, conformed to this age. It's the experience of this world under the condemnation of sin, under the the failure to, to give obedience to God. It's in this world where death is reigning and where people are worshipping themselves and where people are living as they please. Do not be conformed to this age. And we noticed in the morning the way in which we can be anaesthetized by, by what's happening around us so that we, we're dull to the reality of God. And in, in another image, we, we can see the, the, this age with, with its octopus tentacles that d- take hold of us and suck us in and suck the, the life out of us, strangling our very experience of what God has given to us. And sometimes we, we walk into the trap, as, as Paul was saying to the church in Galatia, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? But we ourselves can, can be exposed as we are to this age. We can sense its power sometimes. Other times we cannot, but it always wants to do the same. It wants to suck us in. It wants us to to take up its pattern of living and its pattern of relationship with God or or having no relationship with God but but having a life of rebellion against God. Do not be conformed to this world. And it is a challenge that we all face every day. This age has its claims and its tentacles are so powerful. And perhaps we can say that if ever there was an age where there is so much ungodliness and and absence of God and because of that so much powerful work of darkness and immorality in so many ways that the tentacles are so strong and they reach out with all that power. And it's so difficult for us to, to recognize the influence. And sometimes so difficult for us to resist that very power that is working. But if we are going to be the healthy believer, the healthy child of God, we have to ensure that we do not conform to this world. And that being the case, it will be a battle. We will sense every day that the contrary power is there. We will sense every day that the tentacles are strong and far-reaching and how we need to, to fight them off. How are we going to do that? Do not be conformed, but instead 
be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Be transformed. We read about Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone, his clothes were white, and they were eyewitnesses of all that was happening. There was this great change, and there are many things that we should understand from that, but for the moment, what we can say about transformation is that there is continuity with what was there before. And it was the true revelation of what was there before. So transformation does not suggest to us something new. It's actually the revelation of something that already exists. And of course, that's what his appeal is based upon, the mercies of God. You are already the children of God. And when I'm saying to you that you must be transformed, I'm saying to you that what is hidden in you must come to, to the light of day. And as the glory of the Lord Jesus shone on the Mount of Transfiguration, that what you are in your hearts will shine in the world in which you live through your minds. Transformed by the renewal of your minds. And the same Paul was writing in 2 Corinthians 4. And he's saying, although the outward person, the outward man is perishing day by day, the inner person is renewed day by day. There is that transformation that is internal. There is that transformation that is ongoing renewal. And here it is, the renewal of the mind. The importance of having an understanding of everything that God has said in his word. The importance of having that change and that transformation taking place the more we are absorbed with the object. That's where the transformation takes place. And again, Paul in 2 Corinthians 3, he has that image for us with regard to, to looking at the glory of Christ. With unveiled face, we are beholding the glory of Christ, beholding us in a mirror, and we're transformed into the same image from glory to glory as by the Spirit of God. There is that inner transformation that takes place on an ongoing basis because of the way in which we are engaging with the person of the Lord Jesus. And of course, we, we are doing that through his word and learning about him in his word. And through that transformation, more and more of the glory that belongs to the future is penetrating our lives here in this world so that that image, that shining, that transformation is more and more clear, is more and more evident to those around us. And the more that takes place in our relationship with the Lord Jesus, 
the more impossible it is to hide who we are. The transformation that depends upon our worship of God, our understanding of the Word of God, our knowledge of the person of Christ and all that he is for us in our salvation. It's having our minds absorbed day by day with that. And we can learn that and do so by unlearning other things because we can become obsessed with so many things and we need to hear this and we need to watch that and we need to have the latest episode of something. We are absorbed by it. We begin to think the thoughts of what we are absorbed by. It happens to us quietly in our everyday lives where without realizing it, we are transformed into the image of the very thing that we are obsessed with. And Paul is saying to the Romans, you have to not be conformed to this age by engaging in that way, but by engaging with God in the gospel, with Christ in the grace of salvation, then you will, your obsession will cause you to be changed into the very thing that God wants you to be. The transformation. What a difference it would make for me and for you if that's how we lived, if that's what we hungered for all of the time, and if we are to allow that to feed into every area of our lives so that our thinking is always the thinking of the Word of God and that transformation going on step by step. There is that important transaction. There is that necessary transformation. And in conclusion, there is therefore a transition. And without this transition... This people in Rome will not be able to play their part in God's mission for the world, which Paul refers to from chapter 15 onwards. And the tradition is such that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. By testing you may discern. And of course, it's not that they were going to prove the word of God to be true or the will of God to be true. But it's testing in the sense of discovering the genuineness of something for themselves. The word of God is genuine. The, the will of God is, is, is genuine. It is there in the word of God. And as they go through this transformation of their minds, they're learning to appreciate the absolute fullness and the preciousness of the will of God. And that from two points of view. The will of God, first of all, in the way in which it determines how they are going to live their lives. The child of God, we have boundaries. We learn to know the will of God so we can live for God within his boundaries. But there is testing the will of God and discerning the will of God from the point of view of God's will for the world. 
Jesus took delight in doing the will of God. Jesus was crucified according to the will of God, in fulfillment of the will of God. Paul is in Ephesus and in Rome according to the will of God. God has a will, a purpose for the world. God has a mission which is in accordance with his will and his, his will is his mission in many ways. And so they are to discover the genuineness of the way in which God requires them to live in obedience to him and to discover the genuineness of the way in which God has a purpose to save their neighbor in Rome and to save, to save those that Paul refers to in Spain. God has a will for the world. And they are to see that as good and acceptable and perfect. It is all these things in the eyes of God. But they have the conviction that everything that is good and acceptable and perfect to God is good and acceptable and perfect to them and for them. From their experience, they are coming to understand the preciousness of every aspect of the will of God. And because of that, it will change their behavior and it will change their relationships with each other and it will change the way in which they are going to serve those from whom they are currently divided and serve those who are beyond the very city of Rome. And that's the transition through which the transformation of our minds will, will, will take us to. We will learn to live in accordance with God's law. We will learn to give ourselves sacrificially to God. We will learn that the whole of life is worship, so that when we go to our work or wherever, we are there to serve God and to witness for God doesn't stop anywhere and we learn from the depths of our beings how what is acceptable and what God delights in are the very things that we delight in ourselves a life of total commitment to God let's pray that God will, will bless these things to ourselves and to Engage us with the way in which he wants our minds to be so changed so that we can be what we should be and be what we should be in the totality of our lives so that we can go beyond our own homes, our own families, our own community even and be engaged in the mission of God serving the Christ who has saved us so that we play our part in his mission to save this world for himself. May God bless his word to us. Let us pray. Most gracious God, we bow before you humbly acknowledging our shortcomings in all that you have called us to be and to do in this life. We pray for your mercy and for your forgiveness. We pray for your grace to be overabounding in our hearts and for our minds to be truly enlightened and engaged with you in your word and through all of these things to help us to take that transition that is so necessary for us so that we may be pleasing to you in doing the things that are pleasing to you.
and so discover day by day the joy of being what you have called us to be and of serving you in the gospel we do ask. So bless your word to us, we pray, and hear us and our mercy. For we ask all these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.